Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE can help you manage your money in different currencies. With WISE, you can send money to your cousin in Australia with ease, travel internationally without having to brave an airport currency exchange desk, and take away the guesswork that goes along with converting currencies. WISE lets you send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate, all without any hidden fees. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E dot com. WISE dot com. The only product or service that we are actually endorsing here is volunteering to be a tax preparer. Yes. Nothing in this episode is tax advice. Uh, see a tax professional or your local Vita office uh, for actual tax advice. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Weeds. I'm your host, Dylan Matthews, and as usual, I am joined by my co-host, Dara Lind. Hello. And by Vox Policy Editor, Libby Nelson. Hello. And because it's now April, we're going to talk about one of our favorite topics, tax prep. Tax prep is particularly close to Libby and my hearts because uh, for several years, we've been volunteer preparers through an IRS program called Volunteer Income Tax Assistance, or VITA. VITA and its sister program, Tax Counseling for the Elderly, or TCE, uh, provide free preparation of basic tax returns in the U.S. through a number of community groups around the country for qualifying low-income or elderly people. We do our volunteering uh, through Community Tax Aid, which is the D.C. area nonprofit. I have found it very rewarding and also challenging and valuable intellectually as someone who writes about taxes and has to understand them professionally. Um, So if you think you might be able to use the program or if you would like to volunteer for it, I really recommend reaching out. We'll have links in our show notes. But part of doing volunteer tax prep is knowing that your work in an ideal world would be completely unnecessary. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Tax prep in the U.S. is just really, really complicated by international standards. Um, Many foreign countries, including Germany, Japan, U.K., Spain, Chile, Russia, and all of Scandinavia – have some form of return-free tax system. It's not universal. Justin Trudeau has promised return-free filing for a while, but Canada is now stuck in kind of a similar boat to the U.S. But most of our peers have figured out how to exempt most of their citizens from having to file taxes. T.R. Reid's book, Fine Mess, is an excellent guide if you really want to dig deep on other countries and how they do it. But for now, we're going to be talking about how to get to a better, simpler tax filing system for the next hour or so. So first, we're going to talk about some of the things that make the current system so complicated. So Libby, you and I have both done a lot of tax returns over the years. What's been sort of the messiest or hardest part from your vantage point? So 
I will start to say I'm a total fraud. I'm doing this episode even though I have not done my own taxes for this year yet. Uh, so my we can all doubt my commitment to tax prep. <laughs> I mean, I have done neither mine nor other people's taxes. So, but yes. the thing the thing I've learned most from doing other people's taxes is something I knew in the abstract already, but that has really been driven home by the process of actually doing it, which is that so much social services aid, so much income support, basically helping people afford things in the U.S. is done through the tax code. And that makes taxes incredibly complicated, often for people who are the least likely to have the time and the money to navigate them. So as we were preparing for this episode, I went back through some of my training tools and some of the quizzes I had to take. There were, like, multiple practice quizzes on education tax credits alone. I covered these tax credits as a reporter for upwards of five years. I have trained to do people's taxes. I got, like, maybe a 50% on these (laughs) review quizzes because there are so many questions about, so your scholarship income is this, and you spent this on books and this on this, and this is what your parents do, and this is how much they're supporting you. Which of these several different tax credits should this person claim? And again, this is for people who are, like, training to help people do this, and I'm completely lost on this. Uh, And it's something that I, of all people, am really well prepared to understand, and it is just really illustrative to me of how completely confusing and messed up this is. So, like, if you have a scholarship, but you're paying for books and you're paying for parking and your scholarship actually covered your tuition, like, can you claim a tax credit? Do you actually need to pay income tax on your scholarship? And, like, this is what we're doing for college students. It's very similar for if you're claiming um, the child tax credit, the income or income tax credit, almost anything where you might be getting some help. The process of getting that help through the tax code is absolutely insanely complex. Yeah. Well, in, uh, on education, it's not just uh, we have this whole non-tax system to help people with with higher ed. We have uh, we have loans, plus loans, Stafford loans. Um, we have Pell grants that go directly to the institution. Um, but then we have two separate tax credits that are very different, as you and I have learned, like the lifelong learning credit and the American Opportunity Tax Credit are not the same. They have very different rules. They have different maximum amounts. They have different refundability rules for for how like very low income people who don't have a positive tax burden can claim them. Um, and that's just true across the board. One of the things that is my go to example in talking about this with friends is that like different parts of the tax code have different definitions of what a child is <laughs> and, and who gets to to claim the child. So like there's a definition of child for head of household, which is a filing status for uh, mostly for single parents or single adults who are caretakers of elderly people. But single parents are, are the main use case. So that has one definition of, of if you have a child to qualify. The child tax credit has a different definition of if you have a child to qualify before the Trump tax cuts, we had something called the dependent exemption that had its own rules for, for how to claim somebody. There, it's a different set of rules if you put them in child care um, and all a whole set of requirements for that. Like you have to put the social security number of your child care provider as an anti-illegal immigration measure, um, which is super fun to ask people. Like, And like when we're preparing these returns, as Libby can tell you, like we're in a tiny office sitting – like one by one with someone you've never met before asking the most impossibly intimate questions you can about their lives. <laughs> and so like just sitting down with a stranger and be like, hey, do you happen to have like your nanny's social security number? Is <laughs> like it's a ridiculous question. <laughs> so I, I want to 
rewind a little bit just to like focus on these like the panoply of scholarships and education tax credits is kind of an object lesson here. Because like as we were talking about last week in our episode with Christine Emba, like you can understand politically how this kind of welfare via the tax code emerged, right? It's a, it's it's honestly this very 90s consensus where like center left Democrats don't like taxes and like helping people. Republicans are willing to go along with tax cuts that has since been somewhat challenged and we'll be getting into this in later episodes in tax month by the kind of resurgent Republican idea that everyone needs some skin in the game, that there shouldn't be people who don't pay any income taxes. But, you know, thanks to this, you have a lot of things being rooted through the tax code politically that could, you know, instead of being stood up as new HUD or HHS programs. And you can argue that from the perspective of administrative burden, as terrible as all of this is, it would be even more terrible if the kind of education, okay, you were getting non-tax benefits and also tax benefits also existed for all of these other things. If instead of the EITC being like the main anti-poverty program in the federal, in the federal government, you had several different things being administered that you then had to question whether they were going to be counted as income or not. But, you know, when you're talking about competing definitions within the tax code itself, like the definition of child or different eligibility requirements for these education tax credits, my kind of dumb question is, is this a problem where Congress is creating all of these things and just not going back and looking at the existing structures and just creating everything ex nihilo? Is the problem that the IRS is is doing that? Like, where is this kind of disconnect coming from? Yeah, it's it's Congress. Um, you Talking about this reminds me of something I don't think I've ever ranted about on the weeds before, which is the stupidest policy idea ever floated on the West Wing. The guy last night in the bar, Matt Kelly, the one who's taking his daughter to visit colleges, he said it needs to be just a little easier. Not a lot easier, a little. Toby, every nickel spent on college tuition should be 100% tax deductible, not capped and indexed and bracketed. Every nickel, 100%. Steam comes out of my ears watching that episode. That's I'm also like, this like is the worst idea I've ever heard. Perfectly targeted at the people who watch the West yes. Wing and not the people they want to help. <laughs> But that's to say, to your point, like, yes, like, center-left Democrats in the 90s loved a tax credit, absolutely loved a tax credit. And because of how we make policy, we're making tax policy and we're making higher education policy on two separate tracks. So there's not, like, an incentive to be like, hey, what if instead of creating the Hope and Lifetime Learning tax credits, we just made the Pell Grant bigger? Because of the way, the Pell Grant, you know, the main way that people get cash up front to pay for college. Because of the way policymaking works and taxes and tax credits are sort of on a different track, often actually, you know, running through different committees, literally like happening in a different way than discretionary spending. There is no like, hey, let's step back and look holistically at all of the ways that we help people pay for college. Can we maybe make there be fewer of them? And instead, like, you can just pile on another tax credit. And then if anything is changed, it's also changed through the process of, like, tax cuts, tax reform, and tax simplification, which is still separate from the policy process of, like, how are people paying for college? Should we help them do more of that? Well, and and some of it comes down to literal committee structure. So my understanding is that Pell Grants are are discretionary spending. Are they discretionary mandatory? Discretionary spending goes through the appropriations committees, um, which is distinct from both the Ways and Means Finance Committees, which control the tax code, and the Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee, which is supposed to set sort of overarching education policy. 
And so, like, the level of coordination needed to pass any laws in the U.S. in general is extraordinarily high. But the level of coordination needed to get the approps chair, the the help chair, the finance chair all on the same page on that and, like, moving in lockstep is extraordinarily high, especially given that appropriations rarely happens through the actual appropriations process anymore. It happens through, like, a, a escalating cycle of omnibus, like, continuing resolutions and, and stopgap spending measures. And I, I think also there's a dynamic of, like, individual instance rationality adding up to, like, a systemic problem. Like, if you look at any of these measures in isolation, like the American Opportunity Tax Credit, which is the slightly more generous uh, higher ed credit, was created in the 2009 stimulus. Um, and I think that was, like, it had been a long Democratic wish list item to have more sort of refundable tax credits as part of the spirit of the 90s. I think this was in like John Kerry's 2004 platform and stuff. And so they're writing a stimulus bill and they're like, why not throw that in there? And um, and it was written very, very quickly, passed by February 2009 and ran for a few years. And so by the time it was time to renew, whereas Biden passed everything for one year and so it was easy to let it lapse. This has been going on for a while. People started to count on it. I claimed it um, uh, and since I was in college around that time. I, I love that you were doing your own taxes while you were in college and claiming claiming your own tax credits. This I actually got audited by the IRS for my American Opportunity Credit uh, in 2012 because they were like, you, you did not pay for college out of your own pocket. Your parents paid for college. I'm like, you're absolutely correct. But nowhere in the documentation for this tax credit does it say I actually have to have endured these expenses. <laughs> and then... <laughs> And, and they went Did through Did you it. win? I won. I got a letter from the IRS saying, we have reviewed your application. You owe zero dollars. Like, it didn't say you win in big numbers, but that, <laughs> that was what it felt like. <laughs> you should laminate this and just put it on your desk when you're doing Vita. Like, here, here's why you should trust me. I fought the IRS and I won. I built $4,000 out of the IRS. <laughs> um, but... Uh, As a tax reviewer, if someone were to bring you a, a tax return on which they did this, would you be like, yes, seems cool? And I good. think they might have fixed the loophole that I exploited. Ah, <laughs> uh, the Matthews loophole. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, but, but yeah, to, 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 to return to the semblance of a point I was making, um, it, it's a series of, like, game time decisions that don't add up to a cohesive strategy. Like, a few years later, you're trying to renew all these aspects of the stimulus, including other things that are maybe better thought through. They're like, sure, like, let's throw that in there. Let's renew it. And and at each of those moments, it's better – it feels better if you're someone who wants to subsidize higher ed to renew it than to not renew it. And there are people, like, I think really well-meaning, high-impact people – I think of this as, as something the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities does well – who are just like experts in these small niche provisions and, and optimizing them and are like eager to jump at any opportunity to, to boost them. And I think that's great and noble. It does like mean that there are fewer opportunities to look at the whole safety net cohesively and try to to sort of simplify and consolidate. Can that's I galaxy brain for a second and you guys can tell me if I'm way off base? Go ahead. <laughs> um so I am, like Dylan, a pretty big grump about the uh, continued tendency of Congress to legislate through emergencies. But it does seem to me that as long as we're no longer doing 12 appropriations bills moving separately through the appropriations process every year, that like there theoretically could be an opportunity here to actually look at how various tranches of that interact. And you could imagine like 
a center on budget or some other think tank putting out like, hey, you know, here is every single thing that we have put into education approaches or into the tax code to help this specific group of people, like, here are some very easy technical fixes to consolidate those populations, and that could just kind of get written into the next omnibus bill. Is that not a, like, tell me why this is a dumb idea. It's not a dumb idea. I, it's something I would maybe try if people were dumb enough to elect me to Congress. <laughs> um, but I think the problem is that each of these individual things develops their own constituency and yeah. develops their own, like, champions. And so, a good example of this actually was was Mitt Romney's child allowance plan. Um, I love Mitt Romney's child allowance plan, but it is just like, uh, God, it's it's like a, a slaughterhouse of sacred cows. Um, <laughs> and um, and uh, it it kills TANF, the the one remaining cash welfare program. It slices into their earned income tax credit and uses it to to boost the child credit. It kills the state and local tax deduction. And some of that is, like, to get him some right-wing cred. But I think it, like, genuinely helps kill the project because, like, there are EITC defenders who, like, don't give a shit about this guy's, like, new child credit. They're, like, their job is to defend the EITC. And there are TANF defenders whose job is to defend TANF. This is like the arguments over the universal basic income, right? That, like, in theory, why not have this new thing and also keep these existing things? Sounds like a great argument, unless you're trying to build a coalition that gets right-wing Republicans on board. Right, right. Yeah, well, and I think, um, oddly, the best simplification effort, which uh, is not going to win me a lot of liberal fans, but the, the most serious effort to simplify the tax code in recent years was the Trump tax cuts. And I think that was like a genuinely meaningful and significant simplification. The biggest thing was that they they got rid of exemptions, boosted the child credit, and dramatically increased the standard deduction. And dramatically increasing the standard deduction means that itemized deductions just matter dramatically less for all kinds of people. Um, but even there, they like they tried to do things like kill the state and local tax deduction entirely, and they couldn't do that. There were big limits to what even sort of unified Republicans trying to cut taxes, their most favorite thing in the world to do, could do in terms of simplification. This makes me think of um, one thing that was really unusual about the COVID relief bills last year was that it really approached the question of what can we do to help people in a way that incorporated both the tax code with the child tax credit and non-tax code things. Um, and we saw a little bit of that with the stimulus bill in 2009 as well. But it feels like outside of those really extraordinary moments of emergency, it is very rare to be like, let's help people pay for college. And while we're doing it, figure out if the system that we have of six tax credits and, you know, different grants and some loans for these people and other loans for these people make sense. Like, think tanks love this. I have read so many <laughs> simplifying our financial aid white papers over the course of my career. But the way our system of governance is set up just doesn't incentivize that kind of, like, step back, clean the whole house, <laughs> take everything out of the closets and put it on the table and decide what we want to keep approach. The Marie Kondo approach to the financial aid. The other thing that um, that I think about, you know, thinking about tax reform is this has really – doing this kind of volunteer work has really illustrated to me where and for whom taxes are complicated. So my own taxes this – the, this is the first year because I purchased a home. I'm getting married next year. That My taxes could at all – I'm getting married this month. I'm getting married <laughs> for next tax year. <laughs> I'm getting married uh, – the, like these two years are the first time that yeah, my taxes could be Yeah, I was going to say, I, I like, I, did I like send my suit to the cleaners for nothing? <laughs> um, 
<laughs> okay, I'm gonna re- I'm gonna say that sentence over, um, <laughs> or I'll leave that in. Um, I mean, if we're surprised, imagine how Alex feels. God, yeah. <laughs> you should tell Alex you're get, get planning on marrying him. <laughs> um, this is the first year that my taxes are arguably like at all complicated. You know, yeah. when I was in my 20s, I had an income that was too high to claim the EITC, too low to like deduct anything and have it be meaningful to me at all. And I kind of was like, I don't really get what the big fuss is about taxes. Like, I didn't mind by hand. I didn't even use TurboTax some years. If you're making half of what I made as a 24-year-old and you're supporting three kids, which is a lot of the situation of people I see, the tax system that you're dealing with and the resources that you have to deal with said tax system are so on a different planet, it's almost like doing an entirely different task. And I think that is something that a lot of people who start out reading and writing about tax policy maybe don't get on a visceral level. Or if they do get it, they get it when it's later in life and they have a mortgage and they have kids, but they also have, you know, if you're a professional policy person in D.C., usually an income that allows you to sustain having those things without a ton of obvious and direct government support. Right. We can talk about the mortgage interest deduction, but... Too, yeah. Yeah, I actually, like, do have a question. Like, this is a basic question that I have because, like... I, on the one hand, am aware of, you know, the concept that, like, there's a lot of middle-class social safety net stuff through the tax code and often done in a way that prevents people from thinking of it as, like, social safety net, like the mortgage interest deduction. On the other hand, I am aware from having spoken to you guys and other people who know things about tax policy that, like, it's also complicated at the lower end of the income spectrum. Is it more complicated or is it just that there are equal – that there's, like, a level of complexity for, you know, working class families and a level of complexity for middle class to upper middle class families, but the latter group has the resources to be able to pay somebody else to do their taxes and the former group does not? I think it's mostly that. Um, I think taxes are complicated for a lot of people in a lot of different ways. And I think there are a few factors that occur across income groups and across social groups that that make them more complicated. One is if there's any kind of child custody arrangement or any kind of situation that isn't two parents married to one another filing as a married couple um, who are taking care of the kids that they have together. And that obviously occurs across, you know, across social groups and across income classes. Um, The other is, like, in general, though, I think if you're, frankly, a wealthy person and your taxes are deeply complicated— they are complicated because of your investments. They are complicated because of, I don't know, at this like buying and selling crypto is a thing that we were asking low-income people about yeah. in 2018 if they'd done. We're and still I was like, asking about it. Has I've anyone had to crypto? explain Ethereum to so many like women in their 70s. Um, but uh, yeah, we're still asking about that. No, <laughs> literally no one has ever bought crypto. <laughs> that, I mean, and I think that kind of thing um, – you know, if you have really complex investments, if you're not just taking the mortgage interest deduction and, like, you know, some uh, you're paying for your kid's college and, and taking something off of that, like, that is a situation where you are going to have a professional person to help you with taxes. I think the other thing that's changing things at the bottom end that I've seen a lot more of this year is gig economy work. Um, if you work for Uber, if you work for Lyft, if you work for DoorDash – None of those companies withhold because they're they're treating you like you're a, a private contractor, or a small business. They expect you to keep track of your own expenses and and to like be putting aside your own money for income tax, self employment tax, because you also owe your own Social Security and Medicare taxes. And th- those are like outrageously complicated returns, and uh, and ones that like people lower and lower on the income spectrum are doing as those kinds of jobs open up. 
Oh, wow. Yeah, and the threshold for having to pay self-employment taxes is just, like, absurdly low, right? Yeah. So I'm I'm not actually qualified to do those returns. <laughs> so, because Dylan is a more qualified tax preparer than I am. And so that would be a situation where I would just send them off to somebody else immediately. And I can guess you're seeing a lot more of those. Consider yourself lucky. They're not fun. We're, we're next gonna, year. Next year I'm next getting year. certified advanced. We're going to take a quick break and then we're going to come back and talk about ways to improve this system. So stay with us. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. Burrow's new Dune line features a contemporary yet timeless look inspired by the craftsmanship of classic mid-century construction. If you're looking to bring a sense of luxury, comfort, and durability to your outdoor spaces, you might want to consider Burrow. Like all of Burrow's pieces, they offer easy assembly and disassembly so you can move or store them away as needed. Not only that, they ship straight to your door for free. Listeners of The Weeds can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com weeds. That's Burrow. B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow.com slash weeds. And we're back. Okay, so American taxes are really complicated, and so almost any simplification would be better. Things are a lot better since things got simplified in 2017. In reading about how other countries do things, there's sort of two broad schools of thought that other countries use to make taxes dramatically simpler. Um, they often sort of coexist and reinforce each other. So don't think of these as either or. Uh, it can be both and. So the first is pre-filled returns. And this is something where the government, most governments, including the U.S. government, including the IRS, get notices from businesses and, and other places about uh, how much money different people are making from different ventures. And so under a pre-filled return system, the tax authority puts those together, uh, sort of fills out a return for you, and either it can be opt-out or opt-in. So either they, they send you the return and you sign it and send it in and, and your taxes are done, or in lieu of any action by you, that is treated as your return and you don't have to do anything. And my understanding is that that's something that at least for a significant portion of Americans, could be done fairly easily. Um, that a, a very large share of Americans have like a canonical easy return, which is like you have one or two W-2s showing your wages. 
you take the standard deduction, your taxes take a single page, and then the government can just like send you your refund automatically. Those are super easy. There's some slightly harder cases like if you might qualify for the earned income credit, if you have dependents uh, that you're not getting benefits from, if you have mortgage interest or charitable. But even those, like a lot of like mortgage uh, companies send in forms to the IRS saying how much people have paid in interest. Like the IRS knows about that already. They could incorporate that if they want to. I'm, I don't have to collate these three different letters from my mortgage <laughs> being sold like three times in the first year I had it. This is wonderful news. Um, um, so that's pre-filled returns. The other one, which I'm really excited about, but was, is also a lot harder, is it's called various things. It's called precision withholding in Japan. Uh, the UK calls it pay as you earn. And the idea there is just like you get really, really good at withholding. That the government has since the 1940s, when a young Treasury official named Milton Friedman invented the system of tax withholding we currently use to to make money for the Treasury during World War II, something he would later say was his deepest regret in life. <laughs> um, so, like, the government takes money out of your paycheck. Um, you do not have to have, like, some giant savings account and send them, like, thousands of dollars at the end of the year, typically, unless you work for DoorDash. Um, and, like, different countries do this different ways. Like, uh, the UK tries to be very precise on each paycheck. And so they're, like, constantly adjusting and readjusting how much they're withholding. And Japan and Germany have a system where on your last paycheck, they change really dramatically to make sure that they've actually withheld the exact amount you owe. And in this one, it's it, it's preferable to pre-filled returns in some ways in that it's it's much less action on your part. You don't have to wait for a giant refund or you're less likely to owe a big chunk of money at the end of it. But my understanding is that to do this in the U.S., we would just need to dramatically simplify the tax code. Like the, the, the nice thing about pre-filled returns is that like the content of the tax code does not need to change that much. It might have to change so that more people can benefit from pre-filled returns. But with withholding, it really does. Um, like you can't really do that if you have a million tax credits and tax deductions. Um, and so you would either want to like rename those things and make them not tax provisions, like maybe – there's like an agency for earned income and you you file a, a, an application to them that is not part of your tax return. And and so you don't have to pay taxes. But if you want that, you do have to file something. And, and so maybe Libby and my volunteer work is helping people file that. But you would have to like break it out kind of like that. Um, and, and also some of these systems are just less progressive because brackets – make this more complicated. I think the UK only has like two or three income tax brackets. It's a, it's a much flatter tax code than the US has. And that really simplifies precision withholding. It also has downsides. It's a less progressive income tax system overall, I think, than the US. I mean, in some ways, and I think in interesting ways, the US is getting closer to something like pre-filled forms for people with very simple tax returns. Like, I boycotted TurboTax for several years for reasons <laughs> that will become clear in a second. Um, but nowadays, because I'm busy, I log in and they say, do you still have the same job you had last year? And I say yes. And they say, we can find your W-2, right. you know, somewhere in the back end of our system with the IRS. Wait a second. And I think this year it actually did successfully pull it forward um, and successfully pulled forward a lot of my stuff. And it was basically like looking at the paper version I had making sure that nothing had gotten entered wrong. I don't know why it would have since obviously it all came from the same source and going forward. The interesting thing to me about that is I have to go through the interface of TurboTax, which I feel like is a good entree into <laughs> how 
our tax system is like built around some very specific pieces of software owned by private companies and how those companies are sort of a bigger barrier. Like you would think it's like, it sounds like a joke to be like, oh, big turbo tax is the reason that like we don't have a better tax system, but like it's actually part of what is going on here. Yeah. So into it. <laughs> um, so the idea of pre-filled forms, as, as Olivia was saying, is not like a totally new idea. And in fact, the Bush administration proposed it in 2002, and they were going to do it. And tax preparation companies, in particular H&R Block and Intuit, which makes TurboTax, fought back extremely hard um, that, that they, they thought this was the IRS, like, quelching private business, which is insane. Like, this is, these, are, these, are thing, these are services that only exist because of the public sector. Um, but they succeeded, and so there was this deal called Free File, and the deal was that the IRS would not create its own, like, not even wouldn't do its own pre-filled forms, but wouldn't do, like, an online, like, tax filing system that, you, like, you could do without going through a private company at all. Um, and so, like, that's why that doesn't exist. You can't just, like, go to irs.gov and pay your taxes even if you, like, want to fill it in there. You have to go through some kind of uh, private service or through something called free file fillable forms, which is made by Intuit. This may be <laughs> the only room that has ever had two people in it at once who have used free file fillable oh, forms. No, I, <laughs> I've used it for the last few years because my TurboTax hack is that I use TurboTax to – optimize, and then I have enough confidence in my basic arithmetic that I go in and file. This, this, is, also these, I, this is also how forms. I used to do yes. it. Yeah. This is the life of kings. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you, you use TurboTax as a, as a fact checker. We're such weirdos. Um, like. <laughs> um, so this free file deal, uh, and part of it was that, that low-income people were going to be eligible for free services through TurboTax and all these other places. And, like, this system didn't work from the get-go. So in 2019, 70% of Americans were eligible for free file through this, this program. 2.6% uh, filed their taxes through it. So 2.6%, 70% were eligible. And some of that was, as Justin Elliott and Paul Keel at, at ProPublica have reported extensively, these companies were, like, actively undermining free file and were, were trying to hide the free file websites from Google. They were trying to, like upsell people in the free file program by being like, you know, this would be a lot easier if you just like paid us to do your taxes. Um, and the scripts they gave their customer service workers were, are you sure? Right. It's it's like trying to cancel your cable, but worse. <laughs> um, but then eventually this like grand deal fell apart. So H&R Block left, Intuit left the free file lines. There's still like a few things like TaxSlayer that are in the alliance, but it's all kind of falling apart. And I think that's kind of exciting in that like, it means the deal's off. Like, the deal was if if these places do free returns for people, the IRS won't make its own service. And now they're not offering these free returns. And so, like, I've my understanding is that given enough budget, which is a big if, like, the IRS could put out a request for proposals today and try to set up a system like this. And I have a sort of article explaining how that would work. But it's kind of a now or never moment because the, the old regime is falling apart and we kind of need a new one. The old is dying and the new is struggling to be born. Some, something like that. <laughs> um, so my question about the idea of pre-filing or precision withholding is that, like, if we were talking earlier about the kind of curve of tax complexity where it's, like, high, low, medium, high, mm -hmm. um, or high, low, high, very high or whatever, 
It seems like both of these are targeting the things that are already low complexity and taking them to zero complexity. Like, I, you know, obviously the DoorDash contractor thing is not something that can be solved just by having the government get everybody's W-2s. The custody arrangements, Libby, that you were talking about don't seem like a thing that is going to be solved by precision withholding because the government doesn't have the information. So, and, you know, obviously, Dylan, you clarified that these can be regressive in terms of brackets, but it also seems like there's a certain extent to which the need ability gap on tax filing that like Vita is needed to help isn't something that is necessarily going to be super well addressed by reducing the complexity for the least complex tax returns. I think that's basically right. I think when we talk about tax complexity, we're really talking about at least two things and arguably three. And one is just kind of the annoying process for everybody, even if you have one job and rent and make too much money to earn the EITC of just like you have to get all your papers together and you have to sit down and you have to put the stuff into the forms and somehow TurboTax wants to charge you like at least $60 so they can do your state taxes too. You know, that's like, that is the situation that could be solved by this of like there could be a better way to do that. I think for people who are reliant on um a lot of the tax benefits, and I should say, I guess I should like tease out what I mean when I say reliant, because obviously a lot of middle class people also get the mortgage interest deduction or some of these um, higher education deductions. But you know, if you are making, if you are a single parent or a married parents of a large family making, you know, not that much, um, the earned income tax credit is like vitally important to you, and it is vitally important that you get that in a way that like. Are you able to claim the mortgage interest deduction as, like, a lawyer, you know, in a medium-income area making a good amount of money? It's, like, that's still important to your personal finances, but it's not, like, are you going to be able to, like, buy school supplies for the kids, you know, in the fall this year if you don't get it level important? Um, so I think, like, as long as people are dependent on tax credits as, like, a really sizable chunk of your income. And this is also something I learned, actually, doing people's taxes, is, like, for me, like, usually the amount that I would get back or very occasionally owe would be in, like, the two or three digits. And if it was a high three-digit number, it's like, oh, well, like, that's a nice amount of money that I'm getting in the mail. Um, But it's not, like, a, you know, massive percentage of my overall annual income. When I started doing other people's taxes was the first time I had seen four-figure refunds coming back, like, with any kind of regularity. And, like, especially if you're not making very much money, that's a really significant thing. And so it's actually, like, really important to figure out if we're not doing that, what else are we doing? Um, At the same time, like, I've done through Vita still a lot of tax returns that were one person with a W-2 job, and maybe they claimed the EITC, but, like, it was still pretty straightforward. It's not to say that, like, everybody who makes under the median household income has these, like, incredibly naughty and complicated taxes that you have to, like, sit down and tease out every single definition. Um, people all up and down the income spectrum really would be helped by a simpler system. And and I think one paper I recently read suggested that for EITC returns, your refund average is about 12% of your income, which that's that's huge. Like a 12%. That's an extra month. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that paper, that. in fact— is our white paper, <laughs> hey, hey. <laughs> <Boom>. <laughs> which is a good a good segue uh, to our second break, after which we're going to be talking a bit about how the complexity of the tax system uh, leads into refunds and their size. So stay with us. 
Wise is the app that makes using different currencies easy. Need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast? Getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates? Want travel money without having to slog through the currency exchange kiosk? Then Wise might just be your answer. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, Wise takes the guesswork out of converting currencies. You can send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate with no markups and no hidden fees. In 2023, people sent over $100 billion worldwide with WISE. What's more, over half of those transfers got to their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Whether you're traveling, sending money abroad, or doing business, let WISE help you manage your money in different currencies with ease. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E.com, WISE.com. And we're back. Uh, so this week's white paper is an oldie but a goodie. It's it's from about 10 years ago by uh, U Chicago economist Damon Jones, who's great, a, a wonderful labor economist, public finance economist. And it's on inertia and overwithholding, explaining the prevalence of income tax refunds. So this gets at something we were talking about before, where sort of, especially at the, the low end, tax credits make up a huge share of refunds. People tend to get really big refunds. And so Jones is trying to explain why that happens. And there were two kind of prevalent theories when he was writing this about why most people, uh, about 80% in his numbers, were getting refunds. One is kind of like fear of punishment. People thought that if they owed money and, and were behind that like the IRS would clamp down on them. That doesn't make a huge amount of sense to me because like you can owe money and just pay it on time. Maybe there, there's like a certain fear of authorities and things, especially if you're sort of low income or, or in a marginalized group. Um, but it doesn't seem to really explain much of it. The other is for savings that people like having uh, a kind of mechanism to, to have a bunch of money all at once. That makes a little more sense to me. Uh, uh, there was a, a good book called It's Not Like I'm Poor by uh, a group of sociologists, Sarah Halpern, Meekin, Kathy Eden, Laura Tosh, Jennifer Sykes that talked to a lot of people getting EITC and, and sort of a lot of it was people liking the idea of, 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 of a big lump sum. So that seems plausible. But Jones is testing another theory, which is probably the one that makes the most sense intuitively to non-economists, which is just inertia, um, that people don't change how their income is withheld that much because it like takes time and they have other stuff going on. And that that might explain why people are consistently overwithholding. Um, and he tests this in a bunch of ways by seeing when sort of EITC eligibility changes. He exploits a change during the George H.W. Bush administration where they increased withholding as a stimulus measure. He sort of tracks people over time and sees how they change withholding after they have sudden changes in tax burdens. People really don't change their withholding in response to any of these things, even though it would like get them a lot more money a lot earlier. And it seems to suggest that inertia is, is a really powerful force pushing against people having their money on time and toward people giving an interest-free loan to, to the government in the form of taking a tax refund. So I really like economics papers that are like the... <laughs> The, the basic non-econ way of understanding this is roughly correct. <laughs> um, um, and this is really good evidence for this. But I think it has, has a lot of other implications for our, our tax code as well. So I was curious what you guys thought of it. I genuinely find the inertia argument and the risk aversion argument difficult to 
disentangle from each other, right? Because, like— I was going to say the same thing about inertia and forced savings, actually. Just, like, I—if I have withheld taxes, I assume that level is being set by people who know more about the tax code and my likely tax liability than I do. Whereas if I'm going to adjust that, I'm going to— have to figure it out on my own, and then the risk that I am doing something somehow wrong and I'm going to have to pay money gets a lot more prevalent for me. Like, it seems substantially more likely that if I am adjusting the withholding schedule that I am going to make an error in the wrong direction and owe money than that whoever knows more about me with the tax code is doing that. So, like, just from a common sense standpoint, like, people are not going to want to take the extra effort to change things, but... Part of the reason they're not going to want to take the extra effort to change things is because there are these two very powerful psychological drivers. I was going to make the exact same point from the other other direction, which is if the quote unquote problem is, oh, I just got five hundred, you know, five hundred dollars back or a thousand dollars back or however much people are getting back, versus the problem of oh no, I owe the IRS five hundred dollars. I do wonder if we didn't have such a refund bias system, if we would see people more willing to change withholding. Obviously, like one anecdote against a stream of data is not particularly valid. The one time I have gone to the actual trouble of like refiling a form that otherwise you only see on your first day of work and like trying to remember how to fill it out and how I had filled it out the last time, which is not easy to remember, um, and trying to figure out what change would withhold a little more was when one year when I did owe a small amount. And I was like, well, this is an unacceptable situation. I need to fix this immediately. But other than that, like, I think it's hard to, you know, disentangle the factors at play here from the fact that, like, it is nice to get a chunk of money. The other thing this makes me think of is the payroll tax holiday uh, during the the Great Recession and the discovery that, like, people don't really notice a little bit more or a little bit less in their paychecks. Um, And personally, as an irrational, non-perfect economist invented human – I would sometimes rather have a large chunk of money than that money divided by 24 over the course of the year because that it doesn't it's not as psychologically satisfying. And I think this the paper has some interesting implications for EITC design uh, from my point of view since like the lowest finding that he has is is on EITC and that when sort of changes in EITC payments do not lead to changes in withholding people aren't really responding to the parameters there. And this gets at a, a big debate within econ over the last few years about sort of how effective the EITC is at promoting work. That this has always been one of the main appeals of the EITC to policymakers is that they want to incentivize uh, low-income people working, bring people out of welfare into the labor force. And the EITC ramps up as you make more income uh, from, from zero income to um, sort of $10,000 or so. And so it's, it's meant to have that effect. The question has always been, do people understand this well enough for it to have that kind of incentive effect in practice? And uh, Henrik Clevin at Princeton has, has a paper sort of arguing no, that outside of, of one instance in the 90s, changes in the ITC don't seem to change people's employment work habits that much. I think it's still kind of an open question within, within economics. There's a lot of literature disagreeing with Clevin. But I think the, the Jones findings like move me a little toward Clevin's direction just in that uh, if people aren't changing withholding in response to changes in the EITC, that's a pretty good like evidence that they're not understanding the like specific changes in it and makes me less certain that they're going to be like changing their actual employment habits as in response if they aren't even changing their like withholding, which is like one form as opposed to taking on more hours, getting another job, that kind of thing. 
Yeah, I mean, I think I want to actually like be very specific about what we're talking about when we're talking about adjusting your withholding because it actually it makes it sound like you can like go to your HR office or whatever and there's a dial that you can turn that's like more taxes, less taxes. Um, but it is a form that you fill out like basically to the best of your knowledge about like what your family structure is and what like you do and if you have another job and the relationship between that and what is taken out of your paycheck is frankly pretty opaque to me, a person who enjoys taxes and prepares other people's taxes. The time that I tried to adjust it, it was like not actually clear. It's like, okay, do I need to just like throw an exemption in here for the heck of it? This was, I think, pre was pre-tax reform possibly. Um, but it was like, it's not like you can just check a box that's like, oops, my refund was too big. Please fix it next year. And so there's a level of technical knowledge that kind of gets back to what we were talking about with the complexity of the system. The other note on the the EITC being monthly versus lump sum that I think um, there's been a lot of really interesting like sociological work on how families respond to it, what they do. Um, There's a good amount of debt and borrowing that is then paid off when the EITC comes out. And so it's it's definitely not that like, oh, everybody's perfectly logically saying like, well, I want to use this on a big item and I'm only going to buy those big items once a year. You know, there are some real in-practice downsides um, to the way that like getting – an extra month of income or more all at once, Just the, the way that that affects people's budgets and their spending. This is making me realize that I have actually a pretty elementary question about uh, precision withholding, which, like, in theory would make this whole problem obsolete, right? But, like, when people say, oh, over-withholding, you're just giving an interest-free loan to the federal government, is that money that the federal government actually makes use of in any meaningful way? And, like, does that mean that going to precision withholding would, you know, force the federal government to be fiscally tighter meaningfully? Or is that money just kind of sitting there in a vault somewhere? And so the fact that it's an interest-free loan to the federal government, you know, it's 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 actually a deadweight loss. Yeah, my, my understanding is that it would actually – the only way that it affects government finances is in a debt – ceiling situation where, like, they actually have to have a lot of, like, incoming revenue on hand at at various moments. And so it might change the time frame for those. Um, The solution to that is to get rid of the debt ceiling. There's no – I I don't think it's a sort of specific problem to this. Also, people's individual refunds and, like, the overall – the overall sense of the U.S. budget, I assume, are really not large enough to be – I think in the aggregate, changes in in withholding probably affect that, um, just averaged over everyone's uh, tax returns. But, but yeah. Because um, the bias for overwithholding is so strong? Yeah. I mean, 80 percent of people get tax returns. um, uh, Or get tax refunds, rather. But when when I say it's an interest-free loan, what I mean is that's money you could have gotten in your paycheck and stuck in a savings account. Right. Like, it's it's move, money you're losing, even if it's not sort of affecting the government. The government isn't putting it in a savings account, <laughs> but you could be. Exactly. Also, a, a metaphor that really depends on savings accounts having had interest rates, a thing that, like, didn't really happen for our entire adult lifetime. Well, I don't know if NerdWallet is still a sponsor, but they have a, a great list of <laughs> high-interest checking and, and savings accounts. So, uh, Listen, I, I love my Ally account that was paying me, like, 1.75% last time <laughs> I logged. <laughs> All right. Now that we're, we're uh, blurring the line between ad and editorial, <laughs> it's probably time to wrap up. <laughs> uh, thank you so much to Libby and Dara for joining the panel. Our producer is Sophie Lalonde. Libby Nelson is also, and in addition to being here, our editorial advisor. Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director for Talk Podcasts, and I'm your host, Dylan Matthews. Did you know we have a newsletter? We have a newsletter. We do. Dara writes it. It's great. <laughs> Go to vox.com slash weedsletter. We'll be back in your feeds next week with another hot tax policy episode for tax month. 
The fun is not over yet. We will see you then. The Weeds is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.